The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we find out what Stephen Fry, Ian McEwan and Salman Rushdie have got to do with the future of press regulation. We talk to Ian Dale about his new show on LBC and we ask whether the singer who gave us this... Deliver that long-awaited Eurovision win for the UK. Oh, the memories. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined this week by The Media Guardian's Lisa O'Carroll, by media columnist and much else besides Roy Greenslade, and by radio consultant Matt Deegan. Welcome all. We start this week with a bit of showbiz sparkle and an SOS that was written by some of Britain's most acclaimed authors and playwrights who are trying to save the defamation bill currently going through Parliament. That this long-awaited and much-anticipated bill needs saving at all is down to a Leveson clause inserted by Lord Putnam, stick with me, which shoehorned in some of the recommendations made by Lord Justice Leveson on press regulation. Lisa, first off, tell us about this letter that was published in The Guardian on Thursday. Yeah, it was a letter put together by English Pen, the writers' um, lobby, um, and involves 27 signatories, all of them really acclaimed authors, British authors and playwrights from... William Boyd, Julian Barnes, Salman Rushdie, Stephen Fry, Jill Slovo, Ali Smith, um, Damon, Tony Fraser, the list goes on, there's 27 in total. And they've written to ask the uh, three party leaders, please, please, please do not abandon the defamation bill, which is now, it looks like it's dead in the water um, because of what Putnam, um, or those behind Putnam probably more accurately to say, um, did in the House of Lords last month, which was tack on some Levison-esque recommendations which had not been discussed in the whole three years during which time this bill was being discussed in the House of Commons, then the House of Lords, through parliamentary committees, public consultation, everything. So at the last minute, it's been, it's been hijacked. And so, Roy, it's, it's an old thing, isn't it? We'll seem like, like that to the outsider. This, um, this libel bill has been sort of three years in the making. Uh, it's been supported by all the main parties. Everyone seems to be for it. And yet, um, you know, these sort of Leveson um, clauses get added in. And, and, and suddenly, as Lisa says, you know, it's, uh, it may not happen for, for, through no fault of its own, it would appear. Yeah, I think Putnam did it for what he thought was a, a good intention uh, and was backed by the Labour Party, who probably thought it was a great wheeze to defeat the government in the House of Lords. But there are unforeseen consequences, and they were that because this particular amendment would be, as it were, sneaking in some kind of statutory element to Leveson, which the government, and especially the Prime Minister David Cameron, have been against, um, means that they can't accede to it. And in not acceding to it, it means that they will not provide the kind of parliamentary time to discuss it. So uh, politics, uh, in its worst form, party politics, uh, is likely to bring down a bill that virtually the whole of the press, writers everywhere, people scientists, who, scientists doctors, academics, NGOs, or loads of people think is hugely important to extending freedom. Um, I mean, it was weeks. It was weeks away. Weeks away. We could have had the royal assent in April um, on the statute books, were it not for these recommendations. Because the bits that have been tacked on have made it just unpalatable. Cameron has made it clear this week, two days ago, at his briefing in the lobby, it's not going to get house time. The Liberal Democrats have confirmed that. Um, and as Roy says, I think the Labour Party really didn't didn't really think through the no, consequences were, of what they were doing. They were cock-a-hoop about having pulled this off. Um, it's a bit like a schoolboy thing, really, you know, rah, rah, we won. Uh, but it was rather foolish. The man I feel most sorry for, I mean, obviously this is a law that extends way beyond 
Lord Leicester. But Lord Anthony Leicester uh, has piloted this brilliantly over three years when I originally told him three years ago, you'll never get this done. And he was within an ace of bringing it off. So, I, I, I mean, it's still possible at the 11th hour it could be rescued, but it needs immense pressure to knock heads together to get this taken, the, the amendment taken off. And Lisa, the fact these clauses were inserted at all it reflects a frustration that there's not been more progress made on, on introducing some sort of post-Leveson uh, you know, press regulatory body. Yeah, I think they th- they, the Labour Party, who I have to, have to say, are, um, their line is that it's not, it wasn't them. Um, but um, the feeling was that they tacked it on because they wanted um, the, because of the frustration of the lack of prog- progress on Leveson. But I think the important thing, John, is to... Um, to express what the bill would have done. And, you know, it was really, really important for people like scientists who have, you know, it's not, to, it's not really about journalists uh, and giving more protection to newspapers. It's about ordinary people who criticise, say, uh, a doctor up in Shropshire who was sued by a medical company in the States for, for drawing attention to whistleblowing, in effect, over some dodgy medical device. And he was sued because of our libel laws, which are 170 years old and have largely been intact since 1843. So the new Libel Bill would um, make that impossible because it's a public interest defence to honestly have opinion. Plus the other interesting thing is it bars corporations from taking vexatious claims unless they can prove serious financial harm has been done. So the oligarchs can't come along and close down stories, negative comment in the FT, Trafigura, companies like that that have been in and out of court in the newspapers will find it more difficult to sue. So the libel law is in, in peril, Roy, but where are we with, with, uh, with press regulation? Any, any chance it will get sorted before the 2015 general election, you think? Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, it's, it's getting a bit like that, isn't it? I mean, uh, today at a briefing, uh, Lord Hunt, who's chairman of the Press Complaints Commission, and piloting some of this, uh, supposedly this process, suggested that um, he's waited long enough and it's time to get on with it, actions no, now must replace words. But in a sense... It's not in his hands. It's in the hands of the industry on one side, in the hands of the politicians on the other. And there is a deep division for different reasons on each side. I, there, it would be fair to say there are a group of editors who really don't like even the Royal Charter but be willing to go along with it. The other industry split is between the regional publishers who believe they may have to fork out money they don't really have uh, because of the arbitral process and funding uh, actions against it. So there's that. Then within Parliament, we clearly have a split between uh, David Cameron and the government on his side. Some Tory MPs don't agree with him. Labour are playing fast and loose. They say they might agree to the Royal Charter. On the other hand, some of them say they won't. And then we have the Lib Dems in the middle, which is where they've always been historically anyway, who are not making it particularly clear where they stand either. So there's a kind of, if you say, if you put it in, 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 in very straightforward terms, there is an industry standoff, which is holding things up. There is a political standoff, which is holding things up on the other side. And that is where we are. Um, right now, uh, there's no agreement on an appointments um, uh, body. There's no agreement on how that should be appointed. Uh, the very verification process is still unclear. We've still not sorted out the arbitral arm. And right now, we've still got the Press Complaints Commission. Matt, you're, uh, you run a radio station called Fun Kids, which is perfectly well regulated by Ofcom. I yes. Well, what do you make as an outsider of these sort of tortuous attempts to uh, introduce a bit of new system of press regulation? I mean, we sit, we sit here I sit here as a broadcaster com- compared to, to three press people, um, where we have 
significant regulation uh, from the from uh, through Ofcom uh, and for the BBC, for the BBC Trust, and Ofcom as well. Uh, and does it get in the way of uh, those organisations doing great jobs and investigative jobs? Hasn't seemed to. Uh, it was interesting. Was it the Cudlip lecture a little while ago that wasn't particularly well reported? Where there's a view that actually within Leveson and some of the the, the press freedom that's being potentially put into a bill has a lot of benefits for the press, uh, but they just don't want anything uh, over the top of them. Okay, well, uh, Lisa, we wait and see. Next few weeks, the fate of the libel bill will be decided. Is that right? Uh, I think one week, it's all over. Uh, they have to get it in by mid March. I mean, two days ago they were saying it's ten. It's, the clock is on ticking. Ten days or else. Okay, well, more on that, no doubt, next week. Time to turn our attention to the radio now, and Tory blogger Ian Dale, I'm not sure he entirely likes that description, has a new show on London talk station LBC. Previously host of the midweek evening programme, he will now present the Drive Time show, one of the station's key slots, which was previously filled by James Whale. Uh, Lisa O'Cowell has left us, but I'm delighted to say that Ian from Leicester Square is joining us down the line. <laughs> Hello, John from King's, King's Building, Place. Yeah, thank you very much, King's Place. <laughs> um, that's true, true LBC style, of course. Um, so you're... Uh, I know you're not uh, not keen on being called a Tory blogger, but you you've been going from sort of blogging to the mainstream media for a while now, and it feels like this is your most mainstream gig yet. Well, I've never seen uh, any problem in doing both. I think this, the new media can exist with the old media. Don't see a problem with that at all. So I started on LBC back in 2010, and uh, there was there was some purists saying, "Oh, he's sold out. He's going on the radio." Well, I, I just don't see it that way. Is it a reflection, though, that you know you can have influence as a blogger, and you certainly have done that? But uh, to reach sort of a, a big audience, you have to sort of go through, uh, you know, what you might call old-fashioned, but traditional media, you know, like radio, newsprint, etc. Well, it depends what you mean by a big audience. Guido Fawkes has a, a massive audience. He has more readers than The Independent, although I suppose that's not too difficult. Um, I, I, when, when my blog was at its height back in 2009, 2010, I was getting, I don't know, 150,000 individuals a month. I mean, not a bad audience for an individual with no resources. But yeah, doing radio, it is obviously a much bigger audience, a much broader audience. You're not just talking to political obsessed or media obsessives, you are talking to normal, real people. And it really does feel like, so to paraphrase Lord Putnam, uh, him again, we spoke about him earlier, the, the, the bloggers are coming. You've got the LBC Afternoon Show, Tim Montgomery, of course, the founder of Conservative Home, is the New Times comment editor. Um, and what next? I mean, man, you just mentioned Guido Fawkes, maybe he'll be the new editor of Newsnight. <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> now, that would be something, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, the thing is, though, in the blogosphere, there were only ever... I don't know, a dozen or so people who ever really had some sort of profile. You see, I'm, I'm actually talking about it in the past tense, which is interesting, because I don't think the blogosphere has really come on in leaps and bounds since, I don't know, 2010. That There, there aren't many new people creating any waves, uh, because Twitter is the new blogging. Well, Roy, Roy, Roy from King's Place. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, of course, isn't it? But the, because what I suppose we looked to blogs for was a mixture of news and analysis. News is totally now Twitter-bound. Um, and then when it comes to analysis, Ian, it's surely the case with uh, Tim having moved to The Times and so on, that the mainstream media still sets the agenda in the way that blogs don't. I don't disagree with that, and I, th I think it always was that. Uh, I think there was a certain fascination about blogs back in the period 2005 to 2010 because it was all very new. And initially, mainstream journalists treated bloggers with derision. They thought they were rather sad people who had nothing better to do, or people who wanted to be journalists but had somehow failed to become journalists. It was only when newspaper editors cottoned on to the fact that, hey, we can do something with these and actually forced their journalists to start blogging themselves that blogging really became 
mainstream and you had uh, Guardian with comment is free, you had the Telegraph blogs trying to sign up people like me to blog on their own sites rather than their individual sites. But I do think Twitter has taken over from that. I find now, I started my blog up again in, in December, I find that I, I write essays now on my blog, whereas before I was writing four or five lines on things because I use Twitter to write the brief things now. Yeah, I think long-form journalism goes to blogging is a really good point to make. Um, are you are you getting an audience still for your blog, though? Yeah, it's not like it was because I'm not doing five or ten things a day, and I decided to do that right from the start. I can't with what I run a publishing company during the day, then I do the radio show in the evening. I can't write five or ten things a day anymore, so I can't feed the beast, and that's what it became. My audience would come back to the blog three, four, five times a day, expecting to see something new. That's why I stopped it, or part of the reason why I stopped it in 2010. So I've had a couple of years gap, started it up again. And I'm writing maybe one thing a day or one thing every two days. You're never going to build a Massive audience doing that. I mean, I'm getting I don't know two or three thousand a, a day now. If, if if I write something sort of controversial, it shoots up to sort of seven or eight. But it's never going to get to what it was. I think one well, the, the Twitter point's a really interesting one because uh, a lot of bloggers I think started because they wanted a response and they wanted to make their voices heard. Uh, and the same with people who are successful on Twitter. You know, they can write succinctly in 140 characters, get replies, but also retweets a nice kind of endorsement mm. straight away. Uh, and I think there's probably maybe more of a similarity again with Twitter and then the radio when you get to put something out there um, you the people aren't afraid in coming forward and, and giving their own views are they no that's absolutely right and that's the essence of talk radio you've got to think of the right question to ask the audience one of the things I first learned when I started presenting a show like this was if you ask the wrong question you're not going to get many people phoning in and that's the nightmare for any talk show host <laughs> no one phones in it's only happened to me once and I never want it to happen again and but the secret is you you, you I don't like this phrase shock jock. I think people thought because of my blog when I started on the radio, I was going to be a shock jock. Well, that's just not my style. I, I sort of have a fairly laid back style in terms of interviewing. I'm more like David Frost and Jeremy Paxman because I think if you shout at people, you generally don't get anything out of them. So I've, I've started doing a lot of emotional phone-ins, nothing to do with politics on sort of grief, bereavement, depression, mental health issues. And I get a huge response because people know that I'm going to let them have their say. Uh, I'm not threatening to them. I'm not going to cut them off. I'm not going to shout at them. So I think I, I get the highest number of female uh, callers or I think minority callers on the station, uh, partly because uh, of my sort of rather languid style. Do you, think, do you think that's why they got rid of James Whale? Um, I, look, I, I'm not going to get into that. I, James is a really good friend of mine, and I, he's one of my broadcasting heroes. He has a very different style to me. I, I don't think that was part of the decision. I think they wanted to take the drive slot into a slightly new, newer newsy direction. It's going to be a slightly different format to what went before. We're going to cover a lot more sort of business stories. We're going to cover a lot more art stories. Um, so it's not all going to be constant politics for four hours and there's going to be a lot of other things in it too so I think that was part of the decision making process but I mean James is a fantastic broadcaster and I really hope he's back on the radio again very soon and Ian, you're, you're gradually getting earlier in the schedule surely you must have your eye on the, on the, on the breakfast slot <laughs> no I really don't I don't have look I love doing the evening slot partly because I kind of had it to myself five live do sport radio four do their art stuff so there was nowhere else to go for people who wanted a bit of politics and a bit of phone in um, and it was a great I, I could if I wanted to interview someone for 20 minutes I could I didn't have to do the sort of five minute interview so it's going to be a very different pace doing the drive time show because you can't 
you've got so much to, to cram in, you can't sort of do what I've done in the evening. So I think I'm going to find that uh, a challenge initially. But um, you don't turn down a drive time show. Um, but I have no eyes on any other shows. Thank you very much for asking. And you did mention there your change in style, a sort of much more emotional phone in you got now. Yeah. I think uh, there was a, a very positive review, or mostly positive review, in The Observer recently said the, uh, that they were moved to tears by it. Uh, my by my friend Zoe program. Williams. That's right. Yes. Said, uh, apart from when you get the politics and hit the off switch. But, uh, <laughs> but was that a deliberate, uh, you know, did you sort of see a gap in the market? Or what, what was behind no. that decision to sort of change your approach and your style of phone? Um, I, I, it wasn't a decision. I, I remember back in the early days, back in the, the end of 2010, um, Channel 4 won a decision at the ASA. They were they found in favour of them. They were allowed to broadcast adverts for abortion clinics. And I did a phone-in on whether this was the right decision. But instead of people phoning in on that, I had woman after woman after woman phoning in and telling me about their abortions. Now, that was way outside my comfort zone. I'd never done anything like that before. And I got to the end of the hour thinking, oh, did I handle that right? And that was when the programme director at the time said to me, you will always get calls like that because you're not a threat to them. They, they know that you're going to let them speak. They want to tell you their stories. And that was sort of the start of it. And I, I've done lots of programmes on mental health. It's an issue I've found fascinating. I've never had any mental health problems myself, but I, I know so many people that have, and it's still a sort of it's still a subject that people don't tend to talk about. And uh, I've done a lot of that over the last year. We got nominated for two awards at the Mind Media Awards, which this may sound a trite thing to say, but that's probably the proudest moment of <laughs> sort of my broadcasting career because I thought, well, that proves that we've made a bit of a difference. And I, I just love it. Um, I did a bereavement hour sort of not long after my mother died. I broke down all now. I didn't mean to. I th- didn't think I would. I, I wasn't embarrassed about it, but I think you, you have to, if you're a talk show host, you have to give of yourself. People have to understand who you are, what you believe in, what triggers your emotions. And that, that's why I just wish I'd done this 10 years ago. That's I, interesting because Frank Skinner said something similar, that um, the radio is the most fun he's, he's yeah. ever had, uh, but also that it's affected how and what he puts in his stand up. Has it affected how you write? I don't know, is the honest way. I don't, if I'm honest, I don't enjoy writing. I never have done. I've never thought of myself as a very good writer. I had a column on the Telegraph for two years, and whenever I clicked send, I thought they would send it back each week, saying, this is rubbish, start again. And it was only when um, I thought, I've just got to be myself. I can't write like Michael Gove or Boris Johnson or whoever. I've just got to have my own style. Now, they never did send it back and say, start again, so I must have been doing something right. But I... I don't know whether it's influenced, it's influenced my thinking, it's influenced my politics, in that when you talk to people night after night who are having problems with their disability benefits or their ATOS interviews or the so-called bedroom tax or whatever, um, I mean, I keep getting people on Twitter saying, you're going to vote Labour at the next election, aren't you? I most certainly am not. But um, <laughs> it, it, does, it does have an effect on you. Okay, Ian, well, your new show starts on Monday, is that right? It starts on Monday, 4 till 8, uh, every weekday. Get that plug in. All right, thanks for joining us. Cheers. Right, time for some news in brief, but not too brief. Uh, Roy, uh, Rupert Murdoch's been paying a few visits of late. Yes, most importantly, um, he called in all the Sun journalists who'd been arrested uh, in order to reassure them that he was sympathetic to their plight. And most importantly, said during the conversation with them, evidently, that he now regretted, perhaps, having set up the Management and Standards Committee, which was that internal group which has been providing the police with evidence from emails sent by journalists and internal accounts and so on. 
This is a significant step. I mean, I think that um, uh, we've waited for some time to understand why he did that. Uh, I think he's already said that he panicked at the time by closing the News of the World. I think he panicked again by setting up the Management and Standards Committee. And this is the first real indication that we've had of his regret for having done so. I, I, I'm, morale is so low at The Sun um, uh, among the reporters uh, and sub-editors, but among the reporters especially, um, that I think he knew he had to do something. So he's fronted them up, as they say. But what was the alternative, do you think, if you turn back time to setting up the MSC? Well, the point was they set up the MSC because they didn't want the police trawling through all their files alone. And so the MSC was supposed to protect sources. But what we've seen is that it seems, or at least appears on the face of it, to have done the opposite. Sources are being arrested, so we, they are now identified. I think he simply was in a very, very difficult position, but I don't think that he needed to give the police as much help as he's provided. I think this is always corporate interest versus personal interest, isn't it? There's what he would like and how he feels he wants to run his business, which he's always had total autonomy over. And there's the knock-on effect to a global multinational media company. And I think the MSC was more about that than it was about maybe what he wants. Also, I think it's probably easier to say sorry to 24 people that you're facing um, after the fact. And also, Matt, there's been some interesting Murdoch activity around Tumblr, is that yeah, right? Yeah, odd. Um, kind of popped up this uh, Tumblr called murdochhere.tumblr.com, which is, uh, I think, his chief of staff or the person who kind of looks after his office and is always with him wherever he goes. He's snapping pictures uh, of him and, and posting them up. And it's, it's, a, it's a really nice insight. I'm not sure how long it will maybe last as people can suddenly start to understand more of the workings of the organisation and maybe it'll quietly disappear, but it's quite a fun thing to have a look at. It is great, actually, that New Media has provided a new outlet for our understanding of Murdoch. He goes on to Twitter. You suddenly hear the thoughts of Rupert, which, which had only been passed on to editors discreetly. So, um, for instance, it can be embarrassing. I suppose the temporary acting editor of the Sunday Times who defended Gerald Scarf's cartoon um, uh, involving Israel suddenly found that he had his legs cut from under him by Rupert taking a different line. But it is good to know and to see uh, Rupert Murdoch, it's mid-80s or whatever it is, um, emerging in public. I think one thing it does do when you know, he's constantly been queried about his age and whether he's going to be able to continue to um, do that job. But actually, a lot of that's disappeared since he's been more open, since there's been more things on Twitter, since there are things like this, even since appearing in public to, to talk about um, Leveson-related issues. Maybe it's, it's a way of him being able to carry on by showing that he's still at the top of his game. Gosh. And Roy, also this week, um, it says here why it might be uh, Lego Ver for page three. Yes, this is because um, there are two separate uh, features here. There's been a a long-running petition launched by a woman who um, felt that it was just wrong and sort of set up a petition asking the editor of The Sun, Dominic Moen, to take down page three. It's, It's run its day. And now there's a second petition run by a man who's embarrassed that his daughter was able to see page three and felt that he needed to make a point about that too. And that appears to have had some resonance. My own view is that the pressure to take down page three is irresistible, except for the fact that Murdoch hates to do things in which he's forced into a corner. So my feeling is, knowing also that he's not that struck with it, that at some moment, probably in the next year or so, we will finally see the end to this rather demeaning feature. 
lots of companies also um, have trouble with parents. You know, for, from our point of view, we run a children's radio station. If a mum or dad is unhappy about something that their children have heard or seen, um, they are not afraid to tell you about it uh, and uh, cause trouble. And I should explain my lame pun at the start there was to do with uh, Lego, which, uh, which ended its uh, two-year association with the paper, which may or may not have something to do with page three. Uh, thank you for that. And finally, Roy, I know you're a big fan. I certainly am. Bonnie Tyler is yes. to represent the UK in Eurovision, which is chosen by the BBC, of course, after their triumphant decision to go with Engelbert Humberdinck last year. She's got to do better than Engelbert. I mean... It's I, almost impossible. Well, let's, let's say... Almost. Uh, well, well, the plus is the woman has a voice um, and she has a presence. Uh, and I think that's going to go down well. I really have grown to loathe and whatever Eurovision altogether, but I might just watch to see what Bonnie makes of it. Matt, what do you make of the uh, the Tyler choice? I think it's going to be another duff choice. I think for for the UK, uh, Engelbert went so badly. That Twelve points, wasn't he? They're, Second they're bottom. Sort of. Uh, I think they've sort of replicated the same strategy again. I I don't know why. Song for Europe. Let's not hark back to wanting weeks of voting for people that we're not that interested in. But it just seemed an odd choice. Why don't they just pick One Direction? Why don't, I think, I think why they don't, do well. Why don't they ask Sandy <laughs> Shaw to come back? <laughs> Cliff Richard. <laughs> All right, step too far. Step too far, yes. Uh, well, on that note, I shall say thank you to Roy and to Matt. Well, Roy has left us, but I'm delighted to say in the revolving chair opposite me, sponsored by BBC One's The Voice, is Vicky Frost, The Guardian's TV and radio editor. Hello. Hi. Who um, am I channeling them? Is it Will I Am? Am I, you know? Jesse J, clearly. Yeah, definitely. It's the yeah. French. Yeah, yeah. I love the new script single, don't you? No. Uh, uh, Matt Diggins still here, as you can hear. So lovely to see you. We missed you the last couple of weeks, but obviously Rebecca uh, st- uh, sat in womanfully in your absence. Marvellously. Indeed. So what's on, what's on the top of your EPG this week? <laughs> well, I think this week has largely been about May Day versus Broadchurch. Oh, of the battle of the 9pm crime dramas. <laughs> exactly Who did it? That. Who watched it? Who's, uh, I have watched more of it probably than I'd it's good for you. <laughs> uh, so May Day is BBC. There's basically, we've got two dramas, both about uh, children dying, effectively. Both made by the same production company. Both made by QDOS. Both opposite each other in the schedules. Bit odd, really. Uh, BBC have decided to strip May Day, which is their version of it, uh, across the week, which I personally hate because I just don't think anyone really has either enough time or enough inclination to watch it just night after night after night. Yeah, it's like like me in Spring Watch. (laughs) Carry on. So you always end up basically either being behind the conversation or unable to have the conversation because nobody around you is up to date with it. So That's That's how I always feel in life. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, maybe. That's my personal frustration with Mayday. Uh, Whereas ITV have got Broadchurch, which is a much more straightforward police procedural sort of thing. With Doctor Who? With Doctor Who, with David Tennant and uh, Olivia Colman in the leads, although just both of them actually have got really great cast. I mean, it's kind of like the great and good of acting all on telly, uh, emoting about a lost child this week, basically. Uh, but it's got to be said, Broadchurch did it all over May Day. Well, it's only been on once, but so far in the ratings. Uh, yes, and, and I think also in terms of reaction, I think people did prefer uh, Broadchurch in May Day's favour, I will say, and perhaps this is the reason it was uh, it was stripped over the week, is the first episode of May Day is not was not good actually. I was watching, I watched it on Sunday night, and I was kind of a bit like, "This is not great at all." Whereas it has got better as the week has continued, and I think if you maybe uh, were comparing sort of Wednesday night's episode 
uh, with the first episode of Broadchurch, you might have a bit more of a fair fight on your hands because Mayday has got better. Uh, dramatically, it's far more interesting. It's kind of the idea is basically that instead of seeing the investigation uh, through the eyes of the police, which is what we generally see, you see it through the eyes of the community. So they all start sort of being suspicious of each other, uh, whether that's friends, acquaintances, family. And so everybody looks dodgy, basically, because you're seeing it through the paranoia of a community who've lost a child. That's a really, really interesting conceit. It's just not been done that well, I think. Is um, that the killing effect? Well, I think there has been quite a lot about this, about kind of, you know, uh, and I, I suppose it's slightly inevitable given uh, that they're both about a, a child who dies. But to be honest, I think it's slightly that's about where it ends. I've not seen that much of the killing in them. Of course, we have, uh, we've watched the parents' emotional reaction to losing their children, which I suppose sort of puts it into that... Danish bracket, but I think it's pushing it slightly, if I'm honest. Broadchurch is my favourite. I think the script's much better. And I think, actually, there's something to be said for just playing it straight. You know, this is what it is. It's a procedural crime drama. But it's kind of twist, if you like, is that it's set against this really beautiful uh, British seaside. Uh, it, apparently, when they were filming, it was like basically the only week the sun shone was the week when they were filming, thank goodness. And they're in Dorset, um, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So you kind of get, you know, you have this real sort of beauty... Uh, against a kind of really grim goings on and the first section of it of the first episode up to the ad break was brilliant so I thought it was so well done it was kind of this dawning realization that something very bad has happened but you were ahead of the mother on it and so you could see her it sort of gradually her gradually realizing and it was that kind of rush to the ad break it was very well done tension was great and actually it was the first time where I thought yeah, I'd like an ad break now, actually, because I don't think I can deal with a lot more of this. So it actually used the ad breaks very well as well, I thought. Matt, have you been plunged into despair by these incredibly grim crime dramas? I haven't seen either of them. Did you watch Seinfeld? I haven't seen either of them, but I thought it was interesting what said about ad breaks. Watching some of the Black Mirrors, they used ad breaks quite cleverly as a as a almost dramatic effect. And yeah, maybe that's, they did, yeah. Mm. And maybe that's people that's thinking about things in a slightly different way, which is quite interesting. Natural breaks, as I used to call them. And then when it wasn't, I was like, oh, Dad, it's not a natural break, is it? And he'd say, what are you talking about, son? <laughs> Whatever you do, don't go into a job in the media. So uh, that's uh, May Day and uh, Broadchurch. Yes. What's next? Uh, we could talk about parks and recreation. Oh, yeah, which I missed. It was on uh, oh. last night, square brackets, Wednesday, square brackets. Yes, Wednesday, yes, <laughs> capitals. Yeah. Um, yes, started on Wednesday uh, in the UK, I think for the first time since its first UK broadcast. I don't really understand why it's taken us so long to get it because it is a gorgeous, gorgeous thing. On BBC Four, first two episodes uh, went out on Wednesday. They're on iPlayer if you want to catch up. It's quite late. It's on quite late, isn't it? it I think it was on at 10 or something, okay. yeah. It's quite late Not that late. <laughs> well, you do I run fun kids. Yeah. <laughs> you're, on, you're on school time. But actually, it is on later than it needs to be, yeah. I think, because it's quite gentle, it's quite warm. It's sort of lots of reasons why I might not normally like it, but I do love it. I think it's it's great. It's got loads of heart and it's really funny. And it's a US show, yeah? Is that right? Yeah, US show, yeah. Thank yeah. goodness, I've read about it. <laughs> uh, well, I looked that up on the iPlayer. I've only ever seen one program on the iPlayer. Line, of, line of Duty. Why yeah. haven't you ever watched anything on iPlayer? Well, it's a bit weird, isn't I'm it? I'm just not got in the habit of it. Oh, strange. As soon as you've got it on your TV, it all changes at that point. Yeah, I can't make it talk to it. Oh. Can we talk about this after? <laughs> show me your leads. <laughs> <laughs> Next. <laughs> Uh, oh, well, we're going to talk about Gogglebox, which Oh, is, yeah, this sounds like mm. the worst programme ever. Well, is it? <laughs> I haven't seen sure, it. I'm not sure it's entirely the worst programme ever, but uh, so this is Channel 4's uh, new sort of watching televi- mm, television watching you programme, I guess. It's kind of the real royal family. So 
we watch people at home watching television. Uh, they've kind of tried to give it this spin that what we're seeing is basically a real review of the week's TV. I think that's sort of, I mean, pushing it a little bit, to be quite honest. That's not why you're watching this programme. You're watching it because you're interested in how people have reacted. And, you're uh, and if they have sex. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that is. And, you know, are they picking their nose? What are they having for their tea? Uh, really, are you eating like that on the sofa? Go and sit at the table. You know, those sort of things that, you know, you're inevitably judging them. But they're also, of course, judging what's ever's on TV. So you get those great kind of... <gasps> moments of like the family together kind of reacting and reacting quite honestly to things i mean i thought kind of you know channel four have tried to justify the sort of gypsy wedding social experiments um kind of you know but you know channel four sort of have justified gypsy wedding in sort of any number of ways and then you saw people reacting to it and you were kind of like yeah well that is actually how people react to it you can sort of dress it up how you like but people are just going oh my god look at that terrible dress that's people's reaction. So I've seen a pilot, a non-broadcast pilot, that Channel 4 won't let me tell you anything specific about. So it's like it's tell a us big about secret. <laughs> uh, so I can't tell you anything specific about it, I'm afraid. But I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to, is the answer to that. I did watch the whole thing rather than getting totally bored. And there were some families in it who I really wanted to see more of. And equally, there were some families I really didn't want to see any more of. So it'll be interesting to see which of them get make the cut and actually end up uh, broadcast. We've not seen previews because I think it's going to be edited quite close to broadcast because it's about sort of the week's previous TV is the idea. It'll also be interesting to see whether they cover more Channel 4 things or whether they cover everything broadly. That would be fun to see. There were quite a few Channel 4 programmes in the preview I saw. Is that too specific? (laughs) But... um, but that said, they they did cover other things as well, and I think it was fairly fair in terms of how people how people reacted to things. Um, I can't decide really whether this is just television all out of ideas. It's like basically, you know, the only thing we can think about now is to do television about television, and it's not even dramatically interesting, you know, and and clever like the royal family. And weirdly, uh, it's it's narrated by Carolina Hearn. And oddly, actually, I found that quite grating on the uh, preview. You'd have thought that would be the bit that made it, but to be honest, I found it the bit that didn't make it for me. Uh, I didn't really like her as a narrator on it. Maybe Uh, maybe it's a good way to promote 4-7 and get more people to watch (laughs) old Channel 4 shows from the week. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I sort of wonder whether it's, it's maybe one of those things that you watch once and you think, yeah, well, that was, you know, fairly distracting. I can't... I'm not convinced. I think I want to... Uh, I'm going to want to tune in every week to watch that, though. I think this is a run of four, and I'm I'm not I'm not sure. But it will depend entirely, I think, on the mix of people they get to talk about it. Will you watch a TV show and go, oh, I wonder what the people from Gogglebox will have to say about this? Dot dot dot. Yeah, exactly. Or not. Exactly. <laughs> I really don't think I will. I, you know, I sort of, and also I think if you really do care about that, there are so many other places you can go to get that information. I mean. Uh, you know, there's a marvellous, I think, Guardian TV and radio website where you can read everything people thinks about, think about. Can about you leave comments there? In there. <laughs> yeah, you can, actually, oh. John. You know, but, but that's what I mean. It sort of feels like it's been overtaken already by the fact that you can leave your comments wherever you want. You can just, if you want a commentary of what actual people are thinking about when they're watching telly, you can just have a look at Twitter. You don't need to watch this. It, it's And, you know, it's interesting that everyone's watching sort of linear telly as it's broadcast, as families yes. at home. And I just don't know, you know, how relevant that really is. You can get a similar experience with added jeopardy by going home tonight and looking through your neighbour's front window. <laughs> <laughs> and see how long it is before they call the police. Get someone to film you and you go to Channel 5 show. <laughs> anyway, on that bombshell. I look forward to it. Vicky Frost, thank you very much.
My thanks to all our guests who were Mr. Matt Deegan and Vicky Frost and Roy Greenslade, uh, Lisa O'Carroll, and to Ian Dale. What a packed show it was. You can leave all your comments on anything or indeed everything you've heard on our Facebook wall or our blog, or you can tweet me at the ever-popular Twitter feed, JohnPlunkett149. Uh, today's producer has been Mr. Simon Barnard. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. This week on the Guardian Audio Edition, the Norwegian prison where inmates are treated like people. A day at Gladstone Primary, the school where they speak 20 languages. And in our audio book review, we explore the world of work with Dave Egger's latest novel, A Hologram for the King, and Oliver James's examination of duplicity and double dealing, Office Politics. To subscribe for free to the Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk forward slash guardian or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Audioboo. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture.